came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Metting. And I am Xenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the final episode of Season 7. It's been really fun to do live streams for a different feeling different approach like less editing from my point of view is a nice thing <laughs> for the season but even more so like the way that we structured it the fact that we were reading together and talking to authors that we admire just made it a really fun experience right yeah for sure also i quite believe that we've done seven seasons it feels like we've been doing it for at least a hundred but also not for that long you know in denial well we have ideas for almost a hundred seasons on our master document right yeah sorry listeners you're like really stuck with us until we're, we drop dead yep. right okay that was a good start to the episode right <laughs> let's start on a cheerful note <laughs> anyway it, it was great i particularly i loved co-hosting with camilo boano this mm. season he really brought kind of different dynamics, right? That it's been really fun working with. And of course, I really enjoyed digging deep into the critical theory, something that you and I have been talking about for such a long time. So it's just been wonderful to unpack it all. So I wonder whether our listeners actually <laughs> felt the same way or we just went into this rabbit hole of critical theory. So Jason, stats, my favorite question. How have we done in terms of viewings this season? Yeah, it's because we did a different approach. We're still releasing audio episodes. I think mm -hmm. a lot of our audience are used to just downloading a new episode on their podcast app. So we were asking people to do something a bit different, which is like join a live stream at random times sometimes when we were, whenever we were able to record and stream. And so just first to note, everybody to go on the on YouTube, especially, which is the best place to, to catch the whole collection of season seven. You can see all the live streams there. But because we use a different platform, we had people clicking on the live stream on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. And so for from what I can see, most of the episodes, you know, have 50 to 100 people on YouTube. Views kind of vary into several hundred often. And the same on Twitter as well. So, and generally it's not like we had some people joining live. So we had some live comments and stuff, mm. which was nice. But because we didn't really like promote every episode, people were tuning in later at their convenience, you know, to watch a recording. And then the episodes we released audio only are getting kind of the same downloads as they would normally get for Super. our episodes. So it's kind of expanding the reach maybe. Some people I think we're reaching on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube are not the people who are subscribed to, to a podcast app. So I think it's overall a really nice experiment and also added like the dynamic of being able to see us and our guests engage mm. a little bit that way. So it yeah. was fun. But for next season, we're going back to audio. Yes, absolutely. And back to the traditional podcast ideas where we started. But yeah, it's been great doing live streams. And I guess we'll see in a few months time, once we release the audio, how we're doing in terms of downloads. So, and you might be wondering what's happened this season to our audience participation episode, but don't 
blah, blah, blah. but fear not it's coming today so yeah since as we mentioned we've been doing everything different we decided to go a bit wild with our audience participation episode and mix our mix it with our wrap-up episode of the season so today we're going to hear from some of you telling us about your favorite books we will also chat about some of the themes which are common in the season exciting it's been great to chat to the authors of some of the books that we enjoyed reading together. We talked to Harsha Walia about the book Border and Rule, Global Migration, Capitalism and the Rise of Racist Nationalism, which Ksenia and I absolutely loved. Mm. We talked to Lucy Easthope about her book When the Dust Settles. And of course, we talked to our friend JC Gaillard about his latest book, The Invention of Disaster, which has been making quite a lot of noise in disaster studies. And what's really interesting, I think, is that none of these books would actually fit within what you might call a normative interpretation of disaster studies. And they all touch on so much that's beyond the usual hazard-centric ideas that, unfortunately, we see replicated over and over again in disaster scholarship and practice. Indeed, and... The way these books are kind of written would perhaps not be seen as, you know, objective. And I use this in quotation marks by so many reviewers, too. Poor reviewer, too. Or three sometimes, but, you know, you or know one. what I mean. What we were <laughs> talking about earlier, or one sometimes. Yeah. Reviewers, objective reviewers mm. in general, in quotation marks. And that's why it was so interesting to to kind of to engage with this with this kind of literature, right? With this kind of writing. So Lucy's book, for example, is extremely personal, and Harsh is kind of wonderfully unapologetic, right? It's just so political and so damning. And JC, of course, takes us on the journey of a hashtag epistemological nonsense. And, you know, he's really kind of challenging everything that we ever thought about disaster as a concept. And just reading that and then thinking about it really makes you realize how rich or much, how richer our discussions could be if we'd all engage a little bit more with writing that falls outside of, you know, the normative kind of academic or scientific, in quotation marks, if you wish. And this is why it's been so great to then spend a few live streams with Camilo and with also with our guests and to read books again together, which fall completely outside of disaster scholarships, right? And some of these books were really hard to read. I'm sure we all, you know, struggled and we struggled with different books. That was really interesting for us, I think, to discover, right? And yet all these books emphasize so strongly why we need to read outside of our disciplines. Yeah, for sure. And we had, you know, an ongoing conversation over the months about how we were working through that struggle and how these ideas were influencing us individually. And I hope anybody listening or reading those books with us was also having those same internal kind of dialogues about your own work and your own ideas. And like for you and I, Ksenia, we're obviously pretty comfortable with this idea of reading outside our outside of disaster scholarship at this point mm. if anybody knows that if they listen to us or know us but it's been quite a long journey mm. and has taken you know a lot of like struggle and thinking to to process to process different ideas that are unfamiliar is always hard but now if you look at any of our reference lists in the past years these have changed a lot you know and it's quite funny you know when you get comments from reviewers that <laughs> 
are clearly unfamiliar with your reference list yeah because it's not you're not referencing what they expect you know and i think that's healthy even though it's uncomfortable so speaking personally about like how this is helpful for me and this process of reading books that are maybe have some sort of approach to disaster studies from a different angle i think like the last five years especially for me but more than that like ever since i did my phd and had a pretty normative window into disaster i started reading stuff that was challenging that that frame and i really love it because it just makes it like unsettles everything that is dominant it unsettles and drawing on Catherine mckittrick you know, talking about discipline being mm. empire building, colonizing, all of these things that happen when you start to say that you have truth or you have objectivity, which is the Western approach to things. So I love reading outside because it's destabilizing and it is tearing down borders and building bridges, you know, mm. and allowing people to find ways to work together to understand each other better, maybe leads to something totally fresh, you know? And so I'm hoping that's what's happened to me. I would attribute a lot of my personal growth or development to reading outside of my field. You know? I absolutely agree with everything that you say. And I just want to add that to me, it's reading outside of the discipline and also discussing it. I mean, the amount of time we spend talking about books, if we'd have a pie chart of us talking about things, There'll be a lot of nonsense, but books would probably be kind of predominant. Yeah. And that's really important to process that kind of information, right? And to really overcome the boundaries. You can't just read on your own. There is something about discussion. There is something about conversation and reading together. It's true. And I was just going to say, people listening might like to know that, like, quite frequently, almost every day, we send, like, like screenshot of a page <laughs> or something or something that we highlight. Sometimes it's just like, this is amazing, or a rant, or this is total BS, why did they yeah. write this, you know? So it is like an like ongoing collaborative reading process, and hopefully people listening like the sound of that and can develop that kind of relationship with other people, because it's really rewarding. It's really rewarding and it's really fun as well. Mm -hmm. And you kind of, you get to learn about books that you probably wouldn't read yourself, right? right? You wouldn't have chosen yourself. Or you so... get warned, you don't need to read this one. It's yeah, which is also really useful, right? Because there are only so many books in our lifetime that we can read. But anyway, we talked about the kind of why we read, but also a few of our listeners shared the books that they find inspiring. And they also shared why they read outside of disaster literature. So let's listen. I read a lot outside of disaster studies and I feel inspired by very diverse but interconnected areas. For example, topics on colonialism and post-colonial political development. Here I recommend one of my favorite books by Walter Rodney, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. I'm interested in contributions to decolonial thought and race theory, such as those from Paul Freire, Franz Fanon, Achille Achebe, Boaventura Sousa Santos, to name a few. I also explore books on migration, citizenship, and border systems. And if you haven't read Border and Rue by Harsha Walia, recently discussed in this podcast, please do so because it is a great book. 
But I also love fiction and novels that are essentially political and historical and have so much to tell us about oppression, culture, and tradition. This is the case of Chinma Achebe or Chimamanda Adichie. In fact, one of my favorite books by Adichie is Half of a Yellow Sun. Outside of disaster scholarship, I read a lot from the literature on gender, which informs my work on disasters in a big way. Difficult to pick favorites, but I could definitely say that some books have had a big impression on me. One of those would be Sexual Politics by Kate Millett. And another classic would be What is Patriarchy by Kamla Basin. Recently, I engage a lot with the regional literature on gender from India specifically. And I really, really like We Are Not the Others by an amazing transgender activist, Kalke Subramaniam. It is a compilation of really moving poems, short stories, and art illustrations. Loved it. Yeah, so I definitely do read outside disaster studies. And I read around in geography and science and tech studies and feminist studies. And I definitely could talk for ages about books here that inspire my scholarship. But actually, I'm going to suggest fiction. It benefits my critical thinking around research and participants. It also really does support my writing style. And also, of course, reading fiction is just the greatest of pauses. My favorite books outside of disaster studies are Open Veins of Latin America, written by Eduardo Galeano, uh, Blindness, written by José Saramago, and also the books of Paulo Freire, especially Pedagogy of the Oppressive. Hey, I guess, well, not very surprising, and we're super excited that this is not too surprising, but the core themes that our listeners really highlighted here are decolonialism, gender, and the authors we love so much, you know, so... Pretty much everyone referred to Freire or the Sousa Santos or Galeano and many more. And we, of course, quoted and quoted these authors over and over an hour of the podcast. And it's really great that there is so much interest in non-Anglophone literature. I would encourage absolutely everyone to, to read more, even if it's in translation, right? We're kind of, we're limited by what is translated and how it is translated, you know, for many of us, language is certainly the issue. But please read outside of the phone literature. That really allows us to understand the perspectives and positions on the topics that we've been discussing in the season. So, you know, the positionality, the race, class, power, patriarchy, and so on and so forth. The non-anglophone literature really gives such a wealth of insight and such different epistemological views that it, it can really challenge the dogmas that, that we're used to, right, through, through our Western education and through our Western reading. But what I was most excited about, and I know, Jason, you are not, is, of course, that fiction, fiction, right? People are inspired by fiction. Woo! You know how I feel about fiction. And Victor talked about Saramago. Remember I made you read Saramago when we were in Lisbon? That's still one of my proudest moments. Yeah, I've read a couple of Saramago books. Right? So good. I've actually, I just finished on Sunday, I finished his death at intervals. It's a book about this country where people stop dying. Mm. And it's great. And it's a total mess. Fantastic. Very different interpretation of disasters, but disasters nevertheless. So read fiction. Fiction inspires. Fiction allows to create. It gives you 
some, something else that you can't learn from nonfiction. <laughs> I know. I just find <laughs> it hard sometimes. And I am, I definitely read more fiction this year than usual. So you're definitely having an influence. Oh, 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 you know, oh. you know, I'm reading Autumn of the Patriarch now. I know the book written in one sentence, right? That is amazing. Yeah. I find it pretty hard to read, honestly, but I loved hundred years of solitude. Yeah. And so uh, I'm going with it. I like it in some ways, but it's just like slow for me. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, no, I agree. You need to get into the kind of flow of it. But also, you know that I'm probably the most persistent person you've ever met in your life. So I will not give up on you in fiction. <laughs> that that really sounded as a threat, didn't it? I didn't. <laughs> I had like a couple of Octavia Butler books this year. Oh, yeah, okay. I'm trying to think what I did. I'm, I'm sure there was more fiction. I'm getting up towards my 30 books for the year. <gasps> Yeah. That's crazy. I don't even know how many I've done. Like I think last year I got to 30. The year before I set a target of 50 and didn't make it. I think 30 is like a good level for me. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah. I'm at 121 this year. Oh my goodness. So That's I good. might get to 130 by the end of the year. We'll see. Amazing. <sighs> You're a better reader than me. <laughs> I have more time for now. Oh. I want to talk about critical theory because we've been discussing this for a long time and we finally got a chance to center a season around theory, but also just criticality more generally. And we're able to collaborate with Camilla, which is amazing about this. So hopefully listening to this season convinced more of our listeners that this kind of thinking is necessary for disaster scholarship if we want to push forward and be more have more influence and actually contribute to change not because we need more theorizing mm. although we probably do but because critical theory is primarily about praxis and i think this is what people don't realize because they're when you say critical theory they're thinking about like someone in the ivory tower right they don't realize that it's much deeper and has a history and it's not just about putting the word critical in front of anything like we've discussed before but it has a deep theoretical foundation. And it's about um, language. It's about destabilizing Western notions of science and Western epistemologies and has a relationship to traditions of feminism as well. And I think it has allowed me to think way more deeply and broadly about production of risk, but also about my own position as a scholar and what do I want to actually do with my scholarship thinking about how am I designing my research projects what is my philosophical position on knowledge on truth on reality and you know what are my commitments what are my responsibilities as a researcher as a scholar as an outsider to many communities experiencing risk and oppression and usually I settle on like what is the goal of my scholarship well it's to be a part of productive change and changing the reality of the world. And to me, the tradition of theory that speaks most to that objective is critical theory. Yes, absolutely. And I think we need to keep reminding ourselves, though, that critical theory 
requires a lot of reflection, right? It's not like, it, you know, you take, this is the theory, this is how you apply this, it, you know, to your own work. It, it is perpetual reflection on, on your own action, on your own kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, once we finished reading the books with Camilo, once we had all these great discussions, I actually, I kind of realized that there are two things that really bothered me perhaps, you know, about some of the, you know, some of the things that we read and discussed. And one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot, particularly when we were talking about Federici's Patriarchy of the Wage, is how much of the classical canon of kind of critical theory has actually been produced by men, which is obvious, right, given the unequal access to resources. And, you know, we all think about Virginia Woolf's room on, of one's own here, right, which women didn't have. And I think it's really important to acknowledge this because patriarchy is still very under-theorized. And I think it's still very under-theorized in, in disaster scholarship, right, where, we, you know, we talk a little bit more about capitalism, we talk a little bit more about kind of capitalist oppression, we started talking a little bit more about racism, but prior patriarchy still kind of almost goes unnoticed, right, as a topic of conversation. Well, I think maybe it's for a lot of people in positions of power, it's more unsettling than a discussion of of racism or capitalism. Because it's like they feel more... Maybe the people who have more power in the field are more complicit or they just feel it more, more strongly by virtue of the unearned benefits that they have of mm-hmm. the of that system of oppression, where maybe they feel like they're they are able to actively oppose racism and capitalism if they choose to, but opposing patriarchy is like harder for many of the men in positions of power, right? And women, because very often and, those right, that's the thing, right? That's the the beauty of the patriarchy. It's maybe more unsettling and it's also just more subtle as well more every day kind of you know so yeah that it's interesting that's why you know i'm so glad you're reading the autumn of the patriarch this Mm -hmm. is something we can chat about because i think it really portrays the the every day of it and the kind of the giving up of power the difficulty of giving up of power so interesting and so you know there is another thing so there are two things the second thing is i've been thinking about a lot is the language of critical theory Man, seriously, you know, some of the books that we've been reading, I occasionally just wanted to throw them out of the window, right? Where you really have to kind of, you really have to read. Not, yeah. and But by that, I, I don't kind of mean it in a good way, you know, where you, of course you should read every word, right? Because it's valued. But because the language is just so impenetrable. And I know that many people are really intimidated by critical theory and, you know, rightly so. You know, so much... You know, we can only say so much, say, of, for instance, white feminism, right? Very much influenced by French structuralism. And so the writing is very often linguistically convoluted. Yeah. Um, and here she talks about clear language using every buzzword yeah. <laughs> under the sky. I'm really good at this, right? <laughs> but I, but you know, I think real critical theory, of course, has a deliberately liberatory intent. And Bell Hooks writes that if the transformative purpose of theory is to be realized, it must be written in accessible terms. And this is what I'm talking about here, right? This is, of course, 
really hard to push, however, because so many academics feel that speaking about one's experience or in a simple language is kind of a sign of intellectual weakness. And I wish we were able to translate critical theory a little bit better in, in, in that simple language, whilst acknowledging that this is not a sign of intellectual weakness. Yeah, absolutely. It's hard. Like, and it's even thinking of like Ju like Judith Butler as an example. I find Freire as well. You know, I find because I've read quite a lot yeah. of their work, it's like I've become attuned to what, yeah. what they're saying and like the sometimes the convoluted nature of the writing just kind of washes over me because it's mm. already I've already got used to it or something. But then when others like approach some of those works they're like it's like you said impenetrable and that's a problem and bell hooks is a great example of blending some of the same ideas but in a more accessible way and i wouldn't say that her writing is at all impenetrable it's more way more accessible but a lot of the same lines of argument you know or galeano right is another galeano, yeah. example of just fantastic ability to write and explain things in a kind of really simple manner yeah, well, that's what we're aiming for, you know. So we need aiming. to do. yeah, aiming, aiming and failing a little bit, but we'll try. We're it's, trying. It's, well, it's hard as well when, like, considering, you know, say Judith Butler has a very different like audience and platform for writing than Galliano. So Galliano mm. has like lots of newspaper articles and essays and stuff that are not meant to go into an academic journal. And, and Judith Butler is writing in an academic environment, in a certain discipline, in a language that is not really like accessible to most people, but it is for people there. Um, so it just shows again to me that we need to be communicating with different audiences. It's kind of why I'm such a big advocate for all scientists being communicators. And of course, we have to finish this season with some recommendations of the books from our listeners. So it's not a secret that Jason and I are a bit obsessed about reading. If you didn't know this before, you probably do know this now after listening to, to this episode, right? And so thanks to Camilo's curation, I now have 20 more books on my bookshelf <laughs> because the lists were much longer, right, than from what you've people seen we've released. And, you know, judging by the engagement that we had with this season, we have a lot of followers who also love books. So it's, it's just been great to learn more about the books that people read. And so we really wanted to know what kind of books our followers like to read and think everybody else should read. One must-read book in Disaster Scholarship for me would be What is a Disaster by E.L. Corintelli. Coming from a social science background, I think this book really shaped my understanding of disasters during my initial years in this field. As it goes beyond the natural hazards into conflicts and riots and sets the foundation for the whole qualitative and the social dimension of disasters, which is very, very interesting and important. My choice as a must-read book for any disaster scholar is At Risk by Ben Wisner and others. This book really covers everything we need to know about how disasters are created. It explains why and how to assess uh, vulnerability so that the root causes of disasters become exposed and illustrates how hazards can aggravate or work as triggers. 
It's a book that I kept going back to during my PhD research because it has helped me look at the human condition at a deeper level and be considerate of the timely and spatial factors that end up defining it. My recommended book to know about the history of disaster studies is the well-known At Risk, but I would like to suggest some books in, in Spanish and also in Portuguese. In Spa Spanish, I suggest Los Desastres No Son Naturales, that was a book edited by Andrew Masquery. And in Portuguese, I can suggest the book edited by Professor Norma Valencio, Sociologia dos Desastres, Construção, Interfaces e Perspectivas no Brasil. For the future <laughs> of disaster studies, I'm reading the book The Invention of Disaster, written by J.C. Gaylord, and I think this book can provide us some interesting pathways to think about the future of disaster studies. At Risk is clearly a winner in this very small, very unscientific poll. Not very surprising, right? And for sure, it is an important book as it gives us a lot to think about, right? It's a great entry point to, to really start thinking about vulnerability and kind of thinking beyond the hazard focus approach. So yeah, if you haven't read At Risk yet, please do. Jason, what's your favorite disaster book? Like, do you have a favorite disaster book? I don't read a lot of disaster books or what would be called disaster books, but I see most of the books that I read as like to me as disaster books, <laughs> you know, but generally most people would see them as like histories or, or books about politics or, you know, culture. So when most people say disaster book, they're thinking of something about disaster studies or about disaster event, and I'm not really into that kind of book generally. At Risk is an interesting one, a bit of a touchstone for scholarship, um, you know, and the PAR framework is so influential and connects to stuff that we're doing on vulnerability. So I would say one of the recent ones that, that really resonated with me and lots of practical examples is Gonzalo's book, and we had Gonzalo mm -hmm. on before to talk about the book on natural disasters. For me, that was a really clear articulation of a lot of the topics that we cover on the podcast, a lot of the key concepts in disaster studies with lots of like very clear grounding in a career of, of work with communities. I was going to mention what a book that's not really, it's not disaster studies, but it's kind of a disaster book that influenced me a lot in my early career is Naomi Klein's Shock Doctrine. That's a book that like unsettled some of the ways that I thought about disasters. Even when I had very little literature to ground those new ideas in, it kind of also helped me to break out of the box and think about risk more broadly. Mm. So yeah, that's another one for me that's significant. What about you? Oh, an impossible question, right? I mean, actually, literally just finished reading last week two disaster books and both of our by our friends. So I finished Tej Fazes in the shadow of Tungurahua 
and Jacob Remus's disastrous citizenship. But I'm not going to kind of, you know, give any spoilers because in fact, AJ and Jacob are joining us in season eight for different mm-hmm. conversations. So I'm sure we'll discuss those. And, you know, thanks AJ and Jacob for actually gifting us your books. It's always so exciting when the book comes and the post inscribed, you know, with a few words by the author. I'm very excited by signed books, as you know, Jason. And I, I... I don't think I have like one favorite disaster book, right? Like, I can't quite pinpoint one. There, there are quite a few I've read recently. So for example, Mi Maria, right? It's mm. the stories of people affected by Mi Maria, where the authors literally just you know published the, the narrative, the stories, and it was great. And also I've just finished reading the um, Aftershock of Disaster by Yarimar Bonilla. Mm. Uh, wonderful collection of essays and poems and photographs. And I thought the editors did such a great job at really kind of illustrating how colonialism and state failure and, you know, social abandonment and exploitation of suffering and trauma and kind of everything, you know, the emotion, that human emotion, um, how it all converges and turns into disaster, but at the same time, how kind of solidarity and care and love really proliferate. So, you know, wonderful collection. If you haven't read it yet, please do. I love the invention of disasters. I think JC really kind of challenged quite significantly the established norms. Unnatural disasters was absolutely fantastic. And I think for lay readers to really understand this argument, why disaster is not natural, Gonzalo has done, he's so articulate and he's also really quite funny, you know, and I just enjoyed reading the lightness with which he writes about a very difficult topic. Yeah, so... So there is so much, you know, and there's been some fantastic disaster books in the you know, normal kind of sense of the word, right, recently. But for me still, my thinking is very much influenced not by disaster books, but by all the wider reading that we are doing. It's very rare that I read the disaster book and I think, oh, like, okay, I really haven't kind of come across that framing before. But then I guess we also read in academic papers by the same authors, right? So we're familiar with their thinking and, you know, many of them we know. And so, yeah, so I'm super excited to kind of see more and more people engaging with, you know, the sort of reading like we've been discussing in the season. And also, I just want to say that I I have this bookshelf in my office, which is right behind me. And every time I look at it, it's a shelf dedicated to disaster books, right? Everything else is kind of thematically analyzed by different shelves. And every time I look at the shelf, it makes me realize how kind of lucky I am to have friends who write books. You know, I never thought like 20 years ago, 25 years ago, that I will have friends who write books. And it's just... I don't know, it makes me really happy to look at all these books written by my friends and comrades. And I'm just like, oh, guys, you're just so great. It just gives me so much inspiration and admiration for all these people. Absolutely. Well, that's it for this season. Thank you so much for joining us again and for following us and for supporting us. We hope you enjoyed our live streams and the audio recordings of our conversations that are coming out. And as always, thank you for all your support. We particularly want to thank Camilo Buono for co-hosting this season with us. It's been fun. And I also want to mention that we now have a version of the podcast in French and in Spanish. So if you guys haven't listened to it yet or you haven't followed it yet, please do follow on social media. We will put the tags and the show notes. Yeah, that's been an amazing development in the last year. And I think it's, it just makes, I like puts into action some of the things that we're talking about, you know, makes it more accessible, less centered on you and I, and just broadening the scope of what 
the podcast is about. It was kind of unexpected and wonderful the way it's happened. And we definitely hope that others will be inspired by those offshoots and develop their own content and in other languages would be amazing. So our next season will be out in early January and in it we'll be focusing on solidarity. We have amazing guests for you and can't wait to share those interviews with you. We're, as I said earlier, we're going back to normal audio format. But next year, I'm sure we'll have plenty of live streams. So you won't miss us too much, hopefully. Be able to log in and, and engage on live streams as well here and there. Yeah, and talking of live streams, please join us for a special live stream in early January, where we'll be joined by our friend Jay Kadak to discuss the virtual special issue on decolonizing disaster studies that Jake guest edited in Disasters Journal. And we have some pretty cool guests for you coming to that live stream. So it'll be an interesting conversation. So there you go. See you in 2023. Bye. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Disasters Decon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed with us, Jason Bonmedin and Ksenia Chmutina, and our contributors, Victor Marchizini, Tilly Hall, Claudia Santos, and Aditi Sharam.